Well, happy Easter. It's awesome. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible's in the chairs. It's page 976. If you would, please turn there. Now, obviously, given that it's Easter, this is an Easter message. But it's probably not your typical Easter message. This is a message of the power of the resurrection. It's a message of Christ's resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, his empty tomb that allows us to be the recipients of God's overflow of abundant grace and mercy. This is a message of how Christ's resurrection opens the eyes of the blind so that they may see and know and understand the mystery of God's will, his unfolding purposes and plans of redemption that's that is the very center and the very culmination of all of human history. All of it. This is a message about the impact of the the resurrection of Christ and what it has had, what it is having, and what it will have on all, all humanity. And yet, ironically, the resurrection of Christ is not even mentioned in this passage. Well, how can that be? If you're familiar at all with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 19, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And the reason why is because our faith at that point is in vain. You see, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness of sin. Our, our trespasses have not been forgiven. We, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no saving grace. There is no abundance of God's power working in us. There is no true understanding of God's will and His purpose in the word, world. There is no reconciliation between sinful men and God. This message is about the resurrection of Christ. And apart from the resurrection of Christ, we would still be dead in our sins. This is a message about God's gracious gift to us, this gift of redemption that is found only in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is not possible without the resurrection. So even though I won't be preaching from one of the Gospels, even though I'm not going to stand up here and, and just give you an apologetic argument for why you should believe that Jesus rose from the grave, and even though the word resurrection is not explicitly mentioned in this passage, you need to understand that it is under, it is in, it is all around, it holds up every single word. There is no redemption without it. So make no mistake, this is an Easter message. This is a message of Christ's resurrection because our redemption depends on it. But this isn't simply an Easter message. This is a message for you. This is not about something that happened a long time ago. This is something that is relevant right now. This is a message for you if you think maybe, well, redemption's not really necessary. 
I don't really need it. This is a message for those who maybe think, well, okay, maybe I need redemption, but maybe I I can just earn it. Maybe I can supply my own redemption. This is a message for those of you who are here that think you're beyond the hope of redemption. This is a message for you if you're here and you're struggling just to see how good and gracious God is in your life. This is a message for you if you're here, but you're failing to rest in God's ever-present overflow of His grace in your life. This is a message for you if you're blind, that you might see, that you might understand God's purposes in the world. This is a message for you if you're just struggling to find purpose in your life, that you might see how Christ, the resurrected Lord, is the very center and culmination of all human history. Everything is leading towards him. Not just human history, but yours as well. So this is not just an Easter message. This is a message for you that you might have redemption in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10 is a life-encompassing message. Praise God for the lavish and comprehensive redemption that is found only in Christ. Praise God for the lavish and comprehensive redemption that is found only in Christ. Please look with me at the text. It says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now this passage identifies four aspects of, the re- of redemption in Christ that we should praise God for. The first aspect of redemption in Christ is forgiveness by his blood. Now, If you've been here last week, you know that this passage that we're looking at today is part of a larger passage. Verses 3 through 14 are a doxology. They're a description of praise to God. Paul is commending, Paul is praising God for the spiritual blessings that we have already received in Christ Jesus. And so verse 3 through 14 is one big run-on sentence that you would get graded for, demoted for in your grammar class if you did this. But Paul just keeps compounding phrase after phrase after phrase so that you might know and recognize all of the blessings that we already have in Christ Jesus. They're already ours if you are His. In verse 4, he praises God for the gift of election, that God chose us from before the foundation of the world. But He did it for a particular purpose, so that we might be holy and blameless before God. In verse 5, Paul ascribes glory to God because He lovingly adopted us in Christ Jesus as sons and daughters to Himself according to His good pleasure. In verse 6, he praises God for his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Each of these blessings that Paul praises God for in verses 3 through 14 are given only in Christ. Meaning if you are not in Christ, then these are not yours. But if you are in Christ, 
They are yours in abundance. That phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Lord, or in the Beloved, is repeated 11 times in these few verses. 12, actually, if you count in the Greek. One is just left out in our English translations because it's redundant. It's like, in Him, in Him. You know, so He leaves it out. But now we see in verse 7 that He praises God for the blessing of redemption. He says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we have redemption. By His blood our sins are forgiven. Now this word redemption is not really understood these days. We don't use it a whole lot. And when we do, we use it in in a way that really doesn't do justice to the terminologies, especially the biblical terminology. I mean, what comes to mind? You think of like redeeming coupons or stories of redemption, right? Am I right? Not, not, not a very accurate description of what Christ has done here. You know, cutting out slips of paper and turning them in to get a discount on my purchases, that's nice and all, but that doesn't describe what Jesus has done. That, okay, in, re, in redemption in Christ, Jesus just makes my life a little bit better than it was before. Like, yay for Jesus. He, he helps me a little. That's not what it means. Stories of redemption, you know, we, we think about, we love stories of redemption, right? Where somebody does something noble, something honorable that changes the way that you think about them, right? They're, they do, they, they go from being sort of a drunkard to in, in a moment of peril, in a moment of great desperation, shows true grit. You go all Rooster Cogburn on us, right? You know, so, and we like that. We like that where we see that you can, by your own effort, making right choices or performing good actions can make people think differently about you. But again, that is not what redemption in Christ means. It's not what you do. Now, the biblical picture of redemption is that of a slave, a slave that is hopelessly bound forever in chains unless someone comes to purchase your freedom for you. You can't do it. Someone else has to do it for you. Redemption is the act of purchasing the freedom of a slave. And so according to this passage, we are all slaves, and redemption, freedom from our enslavement, can only be found in Christ. In Him, we have redemption. In Christ, there is freedom. The ransom or the purchase price of this redemption is Christ's own blood. Salvation from our slavery requires more than a sinner's prayer. It requires more than performing religious rituals like baptism or taking the Lord's Supper or confirmation, if you kind of come from that background. Forgiveness of our trespasses requires more than following a list of rules or faithfully participating in religious activities. It requires more than simply believing that I am a good person, and so God is going to look at me favorably. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Nothing. The price of redemption is the blood of Christ. Now, have you ever wondered why? Have you ever thought to yourself, why, why the blood of Christ? Why is it necessary? Well, one, it's God's design. God designed that it's a life for a life. 
In order to be free, there has to be a, a replacement, a substitute that satisfies. So if you are dead, if you are enslaved and you're dead, then the only hope that you have is someone to take your place for you, a life for a life, blood for blood. Maybe you've thought to yourself, well, why, why can't I just earn my redemption? Why, why can't I just pay to have my transgresses or my trespasses forgiven? Why can I not do enough to satisfy God? Well, the problem is with the trespass. Okay? You see, having your trespasses forgiven is not like you paying a fine because you were caught walking through somebody else's land. That's what we think of when we hear the word trespass. That's not what it means. This word trespass means transgression. It means sin. To trespass or transgress is to go against or break God's law. But God's law is not arbitrary. God's law is based upon his very person, his very nature, his character, his purposes, his promises. So when you break that, it's a personal affront to the very being of God. When you sin, your, your life, your action is, one, it goes against the very purpose for which you were created, but also it, it tells a lie to the world about who God is. And God being holy, God being perfect, God being just, he can't simply overlook that offense. Because if he did, he would cease to be God. You can't be holy and just be like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with that sin. You can't be righteous and say, you know what, I'm going to do a wrong thing here and forgive you of your sin. Does that make sense? I can't be just and be like, you know what, I'm going to let you off the hook. I can't even be loving and say, you know what, I know it's not fair for this person that has sinned against you to just be let, let go. It has to be dealt with. So when we sin against God, what we do in a, in a, in a sense is we create a debt. Right? We all kind of get this. Everybody knows at least what debt is, right? Even though you might not be paying on it, and you might be racking up all sorts of debt. You know, you, you, you have a concept of what it is, right? This is a debt to God. This is a debt that must be paid. It is a severe debt. I mean, think about this, okay? If you borrow my car and you go out, you drive my car, you wreck my car, my car is wrecked. And my car is going to stay wrecked until somebody pays to fix my car. Do you get what I mean? Either I'm going to pay it, you're going to pay it, Maybe if somebody else is involved, they pay it. The insurance company pays it, but somebody has to pay it. Otherwise, the car is wrecked. The problem is with our sin and this debt that we create is that we create an infinite debt, a debt that we can't pay. It's like you deciding you're going to drive my car and you have one of my kids in the back seat and you cause an accident and it claims the life of one of my kids. Now, you can pay all day to fix my car, but so what? You cannot replace my child. How can we, who are finite, pay an infinite debt against an infinite God? How can we, who according to this passage are enslaved to our sin, pay an infinite debt against an infinite God? 
How can we, according to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, who are dead in our trespasses and sin, pay an infinite debt against an infinite God? The answer to all of these questions is that we cannot. One sin against an infinite God is worthy of an infinite debt. Just one. If we're all honest with ourselves, we, we realize that we've committed many. The only hope that we have is for someone to pay the debt for us. And this is why the redemption price for our forgiveness had to be the blood of Christ. You see, Christ being fully man was every way like us, yet without sin. He's a man the way that we are men and women. He's a human being. He can stand in our place. The only way that an indebted slave with a death sentence can be freed from the captivity of sin is for someone who is just like you, but yet better, to take your place. To bear the punishment for your sins. And being fully God, Jesus was not only sinless, but he's able to pay the infinite debt that you occurred against an infinite God because his sacrifice was not only a perfect, sinless, unblemished sacrifice, it was an infinite sacrifice. And so the only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can be redeemed, the only way for your trespasses to be forgiven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Now, friends, we have all sinned against God. There's not a person in this room that is clean. There's not a person in this room that has lived life perfectly. Not you, not me, no one. We've all rebelled against God. We've all tried to live our lives without God. We've all tried to live as if this is my world. I'm God. I'm the ruler of my life. We've all gone against some standard. And this perfect standard of what is right and wrong. And we've all felt it. I mean, if you look back over the course of your life, you can look back into times where I know that I committed sin. I know that I've transgressed some standard, even if no one ever saw it. I mean, I can remember being a kid and like doing something wrong. And like my parents weren't around. I was all by myself. But yet there was shame. There was guilt for what I've done. And even if your, your guilt and shame have lessened over time, you can still look back to a point and say, you know what, I know that I've done wrong. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've transgressed. And so we all need redemption. But the redemption that we need cannot be earned. You cannot do it. You can't earn it by being a good person. You can't earn it by praying a sinner's prayer. You can't earn it by performing religious rituals and duties, showing up on special events, dressed up in ties. All you guys look good with your ties. You can't do it by making an empty profession of faith while still living in your sin. Do you get this? If you have been redeemed, you've gone from a slave 
to a freedman. Why on earth would a freedman live as a slave? It's not the way it's intended to be. It's life-changing. Redemption is possible not simply because Jesus died, but because he rose. Romans 4 25 says that he was raised for our justification. I know that that's a big word, but basically what that means is because Jesus rose, because Jesus lived a sinless life, because Jesus died and he now lives, and when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. It's attributed to you. You're declared righteous in Christ. That's only possible with the resurrection of Christ. We can be sure that freedom from sin and forgiveness is possible because Christ rose from the grave. And so if you're here and you're not truly following Christ, I ask you, what is keeping you from receiving the gift of redemption by his blood? What is it that's keeping you a slave to your sin? Is it the faulty notion that I can pray the empty prayer I can make the empty profession, but I can still live however I want to live. I mean, hopefully by now you see just the depth and weight of our sin, that it must be paid, that there is no getting around it, that we have to deal with it. If you're here as a believer, friends, marvel at what Christ has done on your behalf. Marvel at just how perfect God is and how you, this insignificant, this finite being, has tried to stand in his place. You've tried to live as if you are God. And only by the blood of Christ you have been redeemed. Marvel at just how amazing grace really is. It was not cheap. Cost Jesus his life. It is costly. And that leads ultimately to the second aspect in redemption in Christ. Redemption is possible because of God's lavish grace. I mean, Paul continues here in verses 7 through 8. He said, We've been forgiven for our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which God has lavished upon us. The reason that we have redemption in Christ is not because you pray to sinner's prayer or not because you're here today or even because you rejoice in hope of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's ultimately because God has lavished His grace upon you that you are saved. God has given it in abundance. And we talk about grace as undeserved favor, that you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. But even there, the idea, the description is really slight. It's kind of insignificant. We can just belittle it just in in terms of a little definition. So I hope to blow this up for you a little bit. Grace is God's divine and unearned favor that saves us in Christ, that sustains our lives in Christ, and that efficiently and effectively leads us to become more like Christ. It is not just past tense. 
It's not just some future hope, like one day it's going to be there. It's an ever-present reality. This is the one thing I don't like about the song Amazing Grace, because it focuses so much on then and then, but not now. But in Scripture, when you study what grace is, God's grace towards his elect indicates a change of attitude towards us. God changes his attitude towards us. By grace, we go from being enemies of God, children of wrath, to being sons and daughters of God. God's grace is not passive. It is God's action towards an undeserving people. It is not something that's just abstract and kind of like, just declared from a distance, but it is God's action to bring these undeserving sinners to himself. God's grace is his gift that is bestowed upon the undeserving. It is free. It is an unearned donation of himself to you. It's not even like God's given us some good things over here. Like I just said, yeah, give Give Abel a car. God's giving you himself, unearned and undeserved. God's grace refers to his power that is available to and working in his people right now. Ever-present, overflowing riches of his grace lavished upon you. God's grace is the means by which he saves and sanctifies sinners. God's grace is a new state or sphere of life that we have by faith in him. That our standing before God has changed and we live now in the grace of God. God's grace, honestly, is a synonym for the gospel. Christian salvation. God's grace is a change of attitude, his action, his gift, his power, his means of salvation, this new state of every believer, and a very synonym for the gospel itself. Now, hopefully, that serves to magnify your understanding of the grace of God. Paul describes it as the riches of God's grace. When you think about riches or wealth, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Do you know that whatever you just thought about can't compare to the riches that we have in Christ? Paul describes the riches of God's grace as being lavished upon us, as this never-ending overflow of his rich and glorious grace. Have you ever stood under a waterfall? I mean, you're standing there, and this is the image that comes to mind, and and the description of God's grace is like never-ending, soul-saturating, excessive overflow, ever-present, constant, overwhelming, just lavish grace. It's like a waterfall. You know, 1 Peter 1, 3, we looked at verse 3, but 3 through 5 says a Christian life is like this. 
It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, get this, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you ever think about the weight of that verse? I mean, it's, it's basically saying it's God's grace that causes you to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is God's grace that promises you, that guarantees you that you will have an eternal inheritance that is indestructible, that will never fade, that will never be taken away. And it is God's grace that guards you by His power through faith ever presently until that day is arrived at, until the fullness of time has come, until you stand before Christ. That is yours. You you see that the Christian life at that point is all of grace. It's not just then and then. It is now and every moment until then. That is lavish. You know, we sing the song, Amazing Grace. We talk about it as being undeserved. But how many of us live in the present reality that God's riches are abundant, are overflowing on us? How many of us live in the reality that right now God is showering you with the riches of His grace so that you might live as He's called you to live? How many of you are seeing your lives change from being wretches in God's sight to being recipients of His rich grace because of this ever-present overflow? of His riches of grace in your lives. I'm guessing to say very few of us, because I know that I'm guilty of this all the time. So often what we do is we treat grace like a a cool and refreshing sip of water before we enter into a long and waterless desert journey. That survival at that point is based upon us and what we do rather than living in the reality that we stand under a waterfall. Do you believe this passage? Do you believe the grace that we sing about? You know, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, was not lost on the ever-present grace of God in his life. He went from being a drunkard, an abusive sex addict, and the captain of a slave ship to spending the end of his days as a pastor and hymn writer. The man understood what God's lavish grace was. He knew that it was according to the riches of God's grace that he, which he lavished upon him that he was saved, that he was redeemed, that he was forgiven, that he was changed. This former wretch was saved by God. And if the riches of God's lavish grace could change him, then it can change you too. If the riches of God's lavish grace were present to him, then they're present to you as well. And so live 
and the overflow of God's rich and lavish grace, which is offered to you in Christ. Friends, marvel at that reality. You are never alone. You are never without God's grace to enable you, empower you, and strengthen you to do what God has called you to do. Think about that the next time you're tempted towards sin. You're tempted towards, you know, whatever it might be, towards pride or towards deceit or towards self-sufficiency that's, you know, I I am in every way dependent upon Christ and no matter how difficult or impossible this seems for me to act in obedience, I can because I stand under the waterfall of God's grace in my life. I don't have to return sin for sin. I don't have to live as if there's no hope. I can be transformed. I can see others transformed by the grace of God. Not because of what's in them, but because He is faithful. And so redemption in Christ is forgiveness by His blood and because of God's lavish grace. And one of the purposes of the riches of God's grace in redemption is third, to make known to us the mystery of God's will. Now, this next section, verses 8 and 9, contain a prepositional phrase and a participle. It's kind of hard to translate what it means. It's, it's in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His, that is, God's will. And so the first question that always comes to mind when I look at this is like, okay, what does He mean by all wisdom and insight? Is He talking about we have all wisdom and insight, or is He talking about God's wisdom and insight? Well... I think that if he was talking about us, there would need to be more supplied, that there would have to be a verb, sir, that that God lavishes his grace upon us by giving us all wisdom and insight. And I think it's pretty much arrogant to think that we have all wisdom and insight. So it's God's wisdom and insight that this passage is speaking of. It's describing him. It is according to his wisdom, his insight, that he has lavished his grace upon us. It is his wisdom, it is his insight that has made known to us the mystery of his will. And this making known to us the mystery of his will is not simply how God has lavished his grace upon us. Because that's a little disappointing. I mean, Paul's talking about the riches of God's grace being lavished upon us. And by the way, how you do that is just God makes the mystery of his will known to you. I think it's bigger than that. So understand this to be God's purpose. In His wisdom and insight, God had the purpose of making known to you the mystery of His will. And He's emphasizing here, He's highlighting, He's stressing the manner in which God fulfills His purpose to make known to us the mystery of His will. So He does it in all wisdom and insight. God makes his will known in all wisdom and insight. He doesn't shower his grace upon you at random. It is intentional. It is wise. It is according to God's purposes, his intellect. It's consistent with his very character, with his very wisdom. Redemption in Christ doesn't happen at random. It's not based on anything then that is outside of God. It is based upon His wisdom and His insight. It's not based upon your innate goodness. It's not based upon some sort of idea of an undefinable, unknowable, 
decision that you have either to accept Christ or reject him. It is based upon God's wisdom, God's purposes, God's intention, God's insight, God's intellect that he makes this known to you. Redemption in Christ is based upon God, the all-wise and masterful architect of all creation who chose to make the mystery of his will known to us in Christ according to his purpose and his good pleasure. This is God's wisdom, God's insight. And in his wisdom and insight, God has purposed to make known to us who are in Christ the mystery of his will. It's a mystery that he has set forth in Christ. It's a mystery that he has revealed according to his own good purposes and his own good pleasure. Now, we always get hung up on this mystery because we watch too much TV or we read too many, I don't know, fiction books, right? Mystery, the mystery of God's will is, is something that God has made known to us, okay? It's not like us trying to figure it out by our own cunning, like we're some sort of sleuth, right, that it was Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick. That's not what he's talking about here. This is not some special knowledge or special wisdom or just, it's not based upon the fact that you're just a little bit brighter than the person next to you. Well, I believe in Christ, therefore, Mike, I know something that you don't know. Look at me. Right? That's not what it's about. God has made it known. It requires God revealing himself to us. And so when you hear the word mystery, don't think Sherlock Holmes, because mystery in Scripture refers to the revelation of what God had pre- was previously hidden but now has been disclosed by God in Jesus Christ. Okay, so It's revelation of what was previously hidden that God has now disclosed in Jesus. Jesus Christ. The mystery of God that Paul speaks of in the broadest sense is salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Paul uses this word, and he uses it 21 times in the New Testament, when he uses this word mystery, he focuses on the progressive revelation of God given in Christ for our faith. Romans 16 and Ephesians 3 talk about this, that it was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations as it has now been revealed through the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is beyond wisdom and ability to conceive. It's not based upon human wisdom. It is revealed through the Holy Spirit that Christ was crucified and raised, that he dwells in the hearts of all of those who are his, that he is the hope of glory. It is the gospel by which we believe. The wisdom is all the treasure, uh, the the mystery is all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge being found in Christ. Next time you study Paul's letters like Colossians or 1 Corinthians or Romans and Ephesians and you come across this word mystery, look at what surrounds it. You can sum it up in one word, Christ. The application of this mystery is the inclusion of Gentiles as the people of God by faith in Christ. That marriage, even of itself, is a mystery in that it reflects, it points to something greater, which is Christ in the church. 
And here in Ephesians 1, Paul says that this mystery refers to God's plan to unite all things in Christ and bring every power, every authority, every dominion, and place those things under Christ's feet to bring it into subjugation to Christ. This is what Paul means when he says mystery. The disclosed purpose of God to put Christ as the very center and ruler of all creation, either by redemption or condemnation. This mystery of the gospel has been made to us, made known to us by God. Only by the grace of God can we truly come to understand and love the gospel. The knowledge of the mystery of God's will that Paul speaks of is not simply the information, the facts of the gospel, but the application of the gospel into our hearts, to our minds, and to our lives. I mean, I've known many people throughout the course of my life that could tell you everything there is to know about the gospel. They can explain the gospel to you. They've known more theology than I've known. But yet their heart has been unaffected by it. They've been unchanged. They're unbelieving even though they know the truths. Some people can hear the gospel over and over and over again, but not be changed by it, to find no glory in it. But to others, this mystery brings life. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the gospel is veiled to some. Now, this doesn't mean that they can't know the facts, but that God has not made the truth and beauty of the gospel known to them. They don't love it. They don't see it as glorious. It has no effect on their hearts. He says there in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not saying they can't understand it. Like they can't put two and two together when they hear the gospel. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is they don't see it as glorious. They don't see it as beautiful. They don't love it. They're not changed by it. They don't, they don't want to worship God because of it. They're just like, yeah, that's great. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer in this passage is that God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into the hearts of his chosen. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this passage is that the believer sees the gospel as glorious that to them he has made known the mystery of his will in all wisdom and insight. Now maybe an illustration would help at this point. You know, most of us are familiar with the great pyramid of Giza, right? One of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It's pretty miraculous when you think about how it was built and how old it is and all of that kind of stuff. But, but that wonder that you have about the Great Pyramid is really a matter of perspective, isn't it? For example, if I were to take my kids 
to Egypt to go see the great pyramid of Giza, they're not going to have the same appreciation for it than I am, right? Claire would probably say something really cute like, oh, look at that big triangle building. And then she'll want to go back to the pool at the hotel and go swimming to get out of the hot sand and sun, right? It's just not glorious to her. She's not going to want to stay there. Now, for us to see the gospel as glorious, God has to shine that in our hearts. Now, I wonder, how glorious is the gospel to you? How much do you love it? How much do you see your need of Christ? How much are you longing for him right now? Do you marvel at the wisdom and insight of God at the revelation of Christ? Do you stand in awe of the story of Scripture that thousands of years of promises that God has made have been fulfilled in His Son? Do you find beauty in the gospel? Has God shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ into your hearts? If so, praise God for that. That is not something to boast about. That is something to stand in awe of. That's a, that's a means of assurance and comfort that God is at work in you. And that what he has began, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ. If he hasn't, what is it that prevents you from loving the gospel? If you don't love the gospel right now, I want you to think to yourself, what is it that keeps me from loving the gospel? Identify that particularly. Don't just be like, "Uh, I don't want to. But very, very specifically, what is it? And then I'd encourage you to talk to somebody about it. Redemption in Christ means the forgiveness of our sins by his blood according to God's lavish grace, in order to make God's eternal purposes known to us. The fourth aspect of redemption in Christ is the culmination of all of history, that God is reconciling all things in Christ. Let's pick up there in verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God has revealed his eternal purpose to us according to his purpose, according to his good pleasure. This purpose which God set forth in Christ, it was planned, it was intended, it was purposed, it was displayed publicly in Christ. That's what he means there. As a plan for the fullness of of time. This was God's plan for the fullness of time. Well, this has huge implications on the way that we think about God. God is not in process. God is not trying to figure it out as he goes along. What we can know from this passage is that human history, that mankind, that everything is not just simply evolving over time, that it is set 
that God has a plan for the fullness of time, that He has set the boundaries and allotments to the days, whether that be the beginning of creation and the end of what the world is as we know it, to His eternal inheritance that's awaiting for us, from the rise and fall of nations to the very number of your days. All of it is according to God's plan for the fullness of time. And this plan that God has set forth in motion from before the foundation of the world when He chose people to save the people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation to Himself began then before creation. This plan He has revealed over centuries through prophets of old, as He promised to redeem His people through a Savior. It is a plan that we see coming to fruition as He entered into history when He took on flesh and lived a perfect life. It is, it is a plan that has dawned victoriously as Christ has risen from the grave and His disciples found the tomb empty. It is a plan that is working itself out in His church, in His people, as God is ever-present in power to guide and enable and strengthen and change and transform their lives to bring them to Himself. It is God's plan to bring these sons and daughters to Himself. It, and it will climax. It will climax at the fullness of time when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ will return again in glory. Everything is leading up to that point. The very culmination and center of human history. This is God's eternal plan, past, present, and future. This is God's story of what God is doing and my friends, like it or not, you are a part of it. You are a part of that story. Whether you're here as a believer or not, you are part of the story. But you're not the central figure. The center and culmination of all of human history, the center and culmination of God's plan for the fullness of time is Jesus Christ. You know, it's no accident that after 2013 years, we still measure our time by Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That ought to change the way we think about our lives. That ought to change the way we think about our purposes, our objectives, the way that we want to live our lives out. What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What are you looking to do with your life? And how does that compare with God's unfolding plan for the fullness of time? It ought to change it. If you've ever wondered where your life is heading, now you know. Here it is. Here's the end, the culmination. The true purpose of your life will be found in the eternal glory of Christ, whether you are a believer in Christ or not. And the purpose of God's eternal plan is to unite all things in Christ, the things on heaven, things in heaven and things on earth. As, as a plan for the fullness of time, 
all things will be gathered to Christ. All things will be brought to their head. All things will be summed up in Christ, whether in the spiritual realm or here on earth. All things will be reconciled to God. Everything. Not just men and women from every generation, but even the cosmos itself will be reconciled to God. Now, this does not mean universal salvation for all people because Ephesians, the rest of Ephesians is clear on that. Read Ephesians 2, read Ephesians 4, read Ephesians 5. We know that that's not the case. Now, when sin entered the world, it severed man's relationship with God. It brought disunity. But in Christ, that relationship is being reunited by faith in him. When sin entered the world, it brought disorder and chaos, not just to man, but to the entire cosmos, to the universe as we know it. But in Christ, God is restoring order to the disorder, right? He's bringing order to the chaos. When sin entered the world, in trying to live life apart from God, people have scattered throughout the world, trying to carve out an existence from themselves, but In Christ, God is gathering his people back to himself. When sin entered into the world, each person tried to make their own history. They tried to build their own kingdoms. But in Christ, all of history is summed up in one kingdom under its one true king. Everything in heaven and on earth is fully and will be fully put under the feet of its true and rightful head, Jesus Christ. Every man, every woman, every child, everything spiritual, everything earthly, every rule, every authority, every power, and every dominion. Christ will stand as king and judge over all. His rule is cosmic. His rule is comprehensive. Nothing will escape it. So this is the culmination of all of history. This is where we are headed. This is the culmination of your history. And it's really about where you want to be on that day. All right, let's, let's not end here without remembering what came first, right? That forgiveness is possible. That grace abounds. That God reveals himself to us. You're not left in your rebellion. You don't have to be there. You don't have to stand before him at the end as he's judge and conqueror and not have any excuse for your life. You don't have to be those who have been condemned. You can be a son and daughter, a fellow heir who rejoices in your king and receives him with open arms. In Christ there's forgiveness. In Christ, there's lavish grace. In Christ, there's knowledge and understanding. In Christ, there's reconciliation. So praise God for the lavish and comprehensive redemption that is found only in His resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be open to all that this passage has to say for us. I I pray that 
that one, our eyes would be open to to see how much we need redemption, to see how dire our circumstances are, to see the weight of our sin and how that separates us from our eternal purposes in Christ. I, I pray that we would long for Him. Lord, I pray that we might stand in awe of your abundant grace to us. Forgive us from failing to see how you are equipping, you are calling, you are directing, you are leading, you are empowering us to be able to fulfill the purpose that you have called us to. May we live as those who have not just an eternal hope, but an ever-present hope in Christ. Father, I, I pray that you would be opening our eyes even now to understand even more the mystery of your will. Lord, I pray that that would not be a slight thing, that we would look over the course of time, that we would look back over Scripture and see the pages of history unfolding as you are leading us in a direction towards this culmination of putting Christ as the center of all things, that he is going to stand over it all. And Lord, I pray that we would desire the reconciliation that is offered in Him. That we would see that we are part of Your story. That we are part of, of Your plan for the fullness of time. Lord, I pray that we would marvel at that. God, give us eyes to see. Give us grace that we might believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.